Heretics podcast. I'm Dr Dennis Duncan of the Bodleian Centre for the Study of the Book at Oxford and in these podcasts I'll be talking to people who are working at the forefront of research on paratexts, that is the parts of a book that are not the main text, things like indexes, errata lists, prefaces and so on. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be speaking to Professor Anne Blair of Harvard. Professor Blair has published extensively on the history of the book and on the history of reading. She's the author of, among many other works, Too Much to Know, Managing Scholarly Information Before the Modern Age, and a special issue of Intellectual History Review on note-taking in early modern Europe. And today I'm going to talk to her about the paratexts of the 16th century naturalist and bibliographer Conrad Gessner. So, uh, Anne, thank you very much for for joining us. My pleasure. Um, and we, we're going to talk today about uh, Conrad Gessner, Conrad Gessner's paratext. Now, I wonder if we could start off just by introducing who uh, Gessner is. Absolutely. So he uh, spent all of his life in Zurich. His dates are 1516 to 65. And he's probably best known today for two series of works. One is Illustrated Natural Histories histories of what he calls viviparous um, quadrupeds, as in mammals, oviparous quadrupeds, as in reptiles, birds, and fish, four giant folio volumes with lovely illustrations made with great care, often from life, as he uh, boasts. That's the one famous uh, contribution of his, natural history, and the other is bibliography. He's basically known as sort of the father of modern bibliography, for his Bibliotheca Universalis, published in 1545, which purports to list all known works in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, the three learned languages. And what's really innovative about it is that it's trying to be universal, exhaustive. He is includes that, works... Uh, yeah. Is, is that both from the classical period and, and among his contemporaries? That's right. Wow. And he includes works that don't survive, partly sort of to motivate you to go out and find them. Right. So part of this, this what Rumsfeld might, the, 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 um... The known unknowns, the unknown unknowns. <laughs> right. Well, that's exactly right. Gessner is using allusions and, you know, uh, doxographers like Diogenes Laertius, who mentions a lot of works that we don't have. And partly it's to motivate humanists to go out there and continue hunting. That's one, that's one motivation. He does include his own works. He has a wonderful entry about himself. And lots of entries of people he knows, but he's also in touch with tons of printers. And one of the remarkable things is that he includes in the Pandects, which is a volume that's published three years after the Biblioteca, which is trying to be an index to all those books he mentions, a, a thematic index. In that work, he, he includes, it's divided into 19 books, and there's a dedication for each book, and the dedication is each time to a different printer or pair of printers, and he publishes, in many cases, a list of the books they've printed recently, which is super precious to historians because these kinds of lists of recent books printed were pamphlets, you know, cheap things, sort of commercial advertisements, and often don't survive. But Gessner has given us a window onto that genre, and it shows you the kind, the way he worked. I mean, obviously he was in touch with printers and he's busy basically downloading and sorting all the stuff that's been printed yeah. recently. But there's 19 different dedications within the same book then. Each section has its own. Yep. It's a way, I suppose, of maximizing the impact you have from a book. Uh, you, you make a lot of people grateful. You, you bring <laughs> honor to them in doing so. 
but it's quite unusual to be dedicating things to printers. You know, yeah. usually we think of dedications as going to patrons who are going to offer money or employment. So he's bringing to light the role of printers in the Republic of Letters, uh, in the preservation of knowledge, which is what he sees his biblioteca as helping. But if we think of the dedication as something that's quite cynical, so something that's sort of self-interested, what's he playing at by dedicating not just to one printer, but to, to 19 dedications going to 19 different printers? Right, that's a great question. Basically, I've um, studied his dedications as a whole, in fact, and the 19 in one book is the most he's ever engaged in, although I've come across in my reading an author of the early 17th century who apparently had 26 dedications in one book. That's obviously very unusual. How common is it then not to just have a single dedicatory preface at the front of a book, but but to have them interlaced throughout the whole thing? Well, I think it's relatively uncommon, but uh, Gessner does it fairly regularly. About a quarter of his books have more than one dedication. So it might be four dedications or two dedications. And of course, they're not just stuffed in the middle of a book. They are because there's a break point, because the 19 books of the Pandex were divided into books, each with their own title, and that's where you get the dedication. So in his book on fish, De Piscibus, which is sort of lesser known, he has, you know, a book, uh, uh, he's divided that into four books. And one of the books, for example, is a list of fish names in German and English, for example. And that one gets a dedication. So usually, if you're going to be fair about it, you know, if you're dividing your, your book into parts, you'll have dedications for each part. Or you'll just have one big one at the front. And is the one at the front formally different from the other ones? Um, I would say, yes, it's the prestige dedication. It's the one that will get noticed first. So, for example, he dedicates his Iconis Animalium to Elizabeth I. And, of course, she's got the lead dedication. But then in the back, she's, he's got the dedication that he'd used in the previous edition for it. And that's a lesser dedication to well, the Dukes of Suffolk. Very cosmopolitan, the, the dedication to Queen Elizabeth I. Absolutely. This is an international republic of letters. He is hoping to um, gain respect and gain a reputation. So there's lots of things at work then. He's dedicating to printers for... Oh, sorry, I interrupted actually before we got to what might he be playing at when he's... Oh, yes. Well, what I think he's doing, obviously with Elizabeth I, he's hoping to get you know, something good, money, I think. In fact, we have some detail about that particular dedication thanks to the um, uh, state papers that record that she was not pleased that there was uh, another dedication that had been recycled from last time to Thomas and John Gray, who had been executed under uh, Mary, but nonetheless. um, So she actually didn't give him but his expenses. She was disappointed that she hadn't been asked first. Well, that the way he couched his dedication to her was to say, well, last edition I dedicated to uh, the Brothers Grey and they're dead, so I'm dedicating this to you. (laughs) She has a point. Yes, she does. That was not a smart maneuver. Obviously, I think Gessner is also trying to draw attention to the plight of Protestants in England, sorely done by many of whom took took refuge in exile in Zurich, and Gessner was involved in hosting um, some of these Marian exiles. So he's making a political point, perhaps, but that's, you know, not the right place to do that. <laughs> and it cost him quite, quite clearly. He also dedicates, uh, in, you know, in fairness to um, Maximilian, uh, who's going to be future uh, Holy Roman Emperor. He dedicates to Emperor Ferdinand himself. 
But these are, I argue, a minority of his dedications to the real grandees. Most of his dedications are like the ones to the printers, and I think they're people from whom he hopes to, with whom he hopes to trade services. He has given them prominence and honor, in which he often thanks them for uh, help they've already offered. And then the main thing is, please help me more by sharing your list of publications, by telling me about manuscripts that you know about, by um, lending me manuscripts, by sending me images of animals and fish and so forth from your local area or, or information, or also for offering hospitality when he traveled, although he didn't travel that much. Gosh, it's not all just about patronage then. It's not, not all just expecting a kind of stipend by... Correct. And then, we, of course... It's going to depend on the context. I'm not saying all dedications are like Gessner's, but Gessner is operating in uh, this world of natural history where he's trying to, and, and bibliography actually, where he's trying to gather information from all over Europe. And so the only way to do that is to trade favors, is to, he of course engages in correspondence and we have a fair amount of his surviving letters to and from scholars in various parts of Europe. But in fact, the dedication for him is a kind of open letter. Um, and in one, this isn't a dedication, but it follows in the yeah. front matter, one of his books on fish, he actually has a list of people who helped. Thank you to these people. And then he has a wonderful paragraph where he says, you know, if you live in Spain or in Northern Europe, I realize I have poor information. You know, please be charitable in your criticism and please send me information. And then he even says... This is how you can reach me. I live in Zurich, so you need to contact a merchant in your town who attends these fairs that merchants in my town attend. You give it to those merchants, they'll give it to my merchants, and they'll come to me. And I will return something if you give your name and say what you want in return. Gosh, amazing. So the dedication is, is really about, a, well, as you put it, kind of open letter within the Republic of Letters. Yeah. He knows that the print will reach all kinds of people he doesn't know. Those are the most precious informants, people he can add to his repertoire. Now, just to be clear, that, that open moment where he really says, contact me through the merchants, isn't in the dedication. But it is just after the dedication, as part of his sort of gesture of broadening out the number of people he'd like to be able to thank, basically. Now, that, so the, he's not alone in doing that, and it's possible that he picked up some ideas about doing this from earlier sort of bulk compilers, shall we call them. Sebastian Münster's Cosmographia Universalis, for example, approached cities and asked for funds that would uh, fund, in particular, the image of the city in his book. And basically, the subtext is, you give me more money, you get a nicer image. Um, although he does have images, I think, for cities that didn't contribute very much. But uh, as Leonard Fuchs is a botanist who also engages in you know, correspondence and getting information about plants. And of course, Kessner was also collecting information about plants. Sadly, he died before he was able to publish it. And actually, his poor manuscripts were bought and sold and passed on for over 150 years. And they were, even so, they were still of interest in the early 18th century, which is when they were finally published. Do we have in Gessner that thing of, of approaching cities or approaching... Yeah, that's a good question. In fact, I was going to say no, because, but he does, in fact. He, some of his dedications are to collective bodies. These were uh, the City Council of Augsburg, in particular... The city council of Zurich, his hometown, basically who's his employer because he's a city physician. Right. Um, and he also is a teacher at the university. Um, 
So it's sort of a thank you and a please, you know, fund me, which they do, actually. We know. And what's nice about cities is when they receive dedications, they, of course, have to go through a uh, you know, deliberation, and they make records of what they give back. So the City Council of Zurich voted him an annual allotment of grain and wine. And I think it was for his life. I'm not sure exactly. He doesn't have sort of a limit of time built into it. Are we able to see how successful, outside these kind of municipal applications, how successful the individual applications for, for patronage were? Who, Queen Elizabeth, you mentioned, we have the state papers saying, mm, it didn't really work out with that one. But uh, do we have accounts that can show who else decided to, to to send money right sadly not on these from these individuals we do know that ferdinand the first holy roman emperor gave him uh, a a heraldly a heraldic shield and nobility but you know again it's just the exceptional grandee or the archive of an institution so basically no and that is very frustrating. What we can see in the dedication is his thanking people and his asking them for more, you know, images of fish from the Baltic Sea where you live, for example. Wow. But we don't know if they followed through or not. That's the thing about the dedication. With Elizabeth, too, you look at the dedication and it's, you know, fulsome praise. And he even has a 30-line Greek ode in her honor. You get no clue from the printed dedication that something went wrong there. Right. right? The only way you know is by looking at the backstory, the archival material. He does dedicate things to a few times to the same person over and over again. And that is Johann Jakob Fugger and a counselor to the Holy Roman Emperor named Leonard Beck, uh, Beckenstein. Those are the only two people to whom he offers multiple dedications. Does that suggest that they are kind of repeat employers or, or they... Presumably, yes, that's right. I mean, that would be a sign that, oh, something good came of that. Let's try that again. And in fact, we know that Fugger offered Gessner to... He, first of all, he paid for Gessner to come to Augsburg to visit. And he basically wished to hire Gessner, probably as a librarian slash, you know... Uh, governor for his children, instructor to his children. Um, but Gessner declined. And we can imagine that religion played a role in that decision. That, you know, Gessner was obviously a very convinced um, Zwinglian Protestant based in Zurich. Mm -hmm. And moving to Augsburg would have involved at least being in a very Catholic environment. That, I think, was a key, crucial moment where you can see he could have gone that patronage route where you just become the client of this person. Yeah. And from then on, he would have probably dedicated everything to the emperor. But in deciding not to, he, of course, was able to, you know, stay true to, um, you know, his hometown and his religion. And he then opened himself up to you know, basically using his dedication and search for patronage in a quite different way, what I call micro-support, which may have been ultimately more successful. One interesting contrast is with uh, Ulisse Aldrovandi, who's a uh, naturalist from Bologna, very much felt very competitive with Gessner, very much interested in beating Gessner at, at the same task of gathering up natural history and so on. And Aldervandi died having published only very few of his massive um, works of natural history, most of which were published after his death, sadly sort of using the proceeds of selling off his collection of naturalia in order to fund publication of his books. And his dedication strategy was exclusively to target Italian cardinals. They're wealthy, and they, if they can be persuaded that this is good for their PR, then, you know, it would seem to be a rich vein to tap. 
But as it happens, he only got, you know, I think it's two guys, two books basically funded in that way. And so Gessner's method of, of not targeting a single wealthy individual turned out to be a lot more effective because he was able to publish all of his natural histories except for the plants and tons of other books, lesser known works. How fascinating that the that religion doesn't play a part in who he will ask for money. I mean, you say that he's he's a, a dedicated Zwinglian Zurich Protestant, but in terms of who he will approach for for patronage or or, or who he will praise for dedication, this doesn't play a part. Right, that's a very good question. He certainly has Spaniards. He has uh, people from the Graubünden, who would probably be Catholic. Uh, you're right. It, it makes no. It does not feature in his dedications. This is a feature of the Republic of Letters, which is trying to rise above the conflicts of budding nations and religion, and create learning for the greater glory of God, but a God who doesn't have to be too specified. <laughs> he does have a couple prayers. I love that among his paratexts. Very unusual. Basically, pray. Uh, you know, praising divine providence creation. And again, that's not a very specific God. Don't have to get into details there. Right. Um, you mentioned as well that the one to Elizabeth had a poem in Greek as well. So. Yes. Gessner wrote, I think, three dedications in Greek. Some of them, one of them is quite long. Obviously, you know, this is showing off, oh. um, but it's very impressive. And uh, one of them is to a former student of his who is now a director of a salt mine in Poland. And he writes him an 11-page Greek dedication. He, so he, he, he is an editor of Greek. You know, he has a fair amount. That's what's not so uh, well known about his work. He's really a humanist who uh, published Editionis Principes of a number of Greek works at his first editions of a number of Greek works with Latin translation. Uh, so Athenagoras and Cassius Iastros Sophista and um, Stobaeus's collection of Greek sentences, more Greek sentences by a couple of Byzantine monks who are not well known at all, Maximus and Antonius, that's 1546. And those are the first editions. Then he has Elian, who's a natural historian, of course. So overall, he has a, a strong Greek activity. Mm. The major works that you talked about, the, the, the work of bibliography and, was it the Historia Animalis? Or Animalium, yep. Animalium. And you mentioned that these are enormous folio volumes. Perhaps you could say something about the other paratexts right. involved in these. Yes. So, oh, the Historia Animalium first volume, which was published in 1551, that's on the quadrupeds, is his biggest uh, and sort of showiest volume. He has something like 15 different paratexts in there. Well, uh, so he, obviously this is a volume he really, you know, devoted a lot of energy to. Yes. The later volumes of the natural history don't have quite so many. And this is going to be his idea or him in, in conjunction with the printers, do we think, that bashing out exactly how many parasites or what the luxury volume is going to look like. Do you think this is a discussion or a negotiation that happens between an author like Gessner and the printer? Absolutely. And we don't really know, unfortunately. That's a relationship that's very tight in Gessner's case. You know, he he was in and out of Froschauer in Zurich a lot. He published something like 24 books with him. He published another 14 books with his own relatives who were printers in Zurich, Andreas and Jakob Gessner. And then he publishes other things with printers elsewhere, 
uh, Basel and Strasbourg and Lyon, for example. So with those more distant printers, it's possible there would have been correspondence. Sadly, it doesn't survive. But of course, with the Zurich printers, there would never have been any correspondence. He's in and out of their, you know, their offices all the time, just walking down the street. So we don't know. But yes, I would say pair text is always negotiated. Obviously, printers are going to care about how long it is because that's going to cost more. Printers probably control the title page a lot. You know, that's where the main advertisement is, you know, who is the author of this book. And we know of printers who prefer to highlight one author rather than another, say, in a work that might have been presented as co-authored but wasn't. Um, And... I think one should think a lot about the printer's role in making that decision. It's not necessarily the author's fault, shall we say, that X co-author was sort of, you know, left out. Do these um, Gessner works have epistles from the prince to the reader? Terrific question. In fact, this one, the 1551, does have a printer to the reader. Not, it's pretty unusual in the Gessner corpus. In this case, the printer to the reader is basically complaining about a what's going on in Basel in that same year that unbeknownst to Froschauer, who's been Zurich, you know, Gessner's dedicated printer, a Basel printer has decided to produce an epitome of Gessner's Bibliotheca Universalis. And Froschauer is angry. And he's basically saying, it's a bad epitome, it's shorter than, right, it right. has less detail. And, you know, it's a shot across the bow. Don't do this again, Basel guys. And in fact... <laughs> It's not clear that Gessner was so hostile to it. It may have been, you know, in the end, of course, he publishes with these Basel printers and um, there, but Gessner does publish, in fact, through Froschauer, uh, another epitome. Uh, so the Basel one in 1551 was called an Elenchus. And in 1555, Gessner publishes through Froschauer an epitome of the Biblioteca. So you can see how it's a it's a brand, you know, and it's working. Biblioteca has been popular and people are trying to sort of make some money by having sequels, basically. That term Elenchus seems to have some uh, latitude, doesn't it? I sometimes see it at the bottom of indexes. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, I would say, in fact, the word goes back to Aristotle and has very powerful logical meaning. But, right, by the 16th century, I feel, the way I see it used is as an index. And so basically an alphabetical list, which, of course, is what his Bibliotheca is. It's an alphabetical list of authors. Interesting is alphabetized by first name rather than last name. But he explains that that's better. And so in that sense, the Elenchus is a list. And maybe that's why they chose the name. But it is a fascinating term. I want to go back to the other paratexts that are in the 1551 Historia Animalium. Because one of the paratexts that he has is a list of paratexts. Oh, brilliant. Which is very unusual. And basically it's called the works that appear before the beginning of this work. But this is so strange because paratexts are, are almost, it, it's almost as if they're supposed to be invisible. They're invisible forms. Like it, once you start having a list of, of them, they, they instantly stop being invisible. That's a very good point. And in fact, his list is incomplete. It doesn't list all of his paratexts. First of all, the list of paratexts only occurs after the dedication. We would call the dedication a paratext. But then the list comes so that there's dedication, printed to the reader, then the list of paratexts, which is basically a guide to the rest of the front matter. Okay, but it misses out the dedication and to the Correct. reader because we've already had... Okay. Exactly. So then there's Gessner to the reader. Then there's some excerpts from the Bible, Job 38, 39 on divine providence, 
and from Theodore Gaza on the benefit of a history of animals. So basically these are authorities, both biblical and ancient, why we should study animals. Then we have a catalog of authors, that is authors who've already written on uh, natural history. Of course, that's drawing on his expertise since he's a bibliographer. And that's where at the end of the catalog of authors he's used, which is sorted by ancient authors and medieval authors and current authors. And then there is a list of learned men who helped. So these are people who are alive. Some of them appear in the list of authors because they are also the authors of books he used. But these are the people who have contributed in manuscript, you know, by writing. So it's sort of like a dedication again. They're a kind of shout out to people who've helped, people who might help again. Exactly. Yes. He's maximizing the footprint of, of this book, yeah. okay. calling, honoring these people. He, he names them. He lists them in the same alphabetical order that he uses for bibliography. And he lists basically their condition, you know, what status they are and where they live. Uh, and sometimes he calls them, you know, most learned or throws in a nice superlative adjective. So there we are at the list of those who helped. Then we have a list of chapters, which is basically explaining, you know, a table of contents. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, no, no, sorry. We have a, a preface explaining why the contents are arranged in this order. Then we have the table of contents. And then we have alphabetical indexes. And his alphabetical indexes are numerous. Uh, he has them separated by language. So Latin, Greek, Hebrew, but then we have, you know, Illyrian and Spanish and English and Italian and so forth. He's got 16 different of those. Oh, no. He only counted that as one, by the way, and saying he had 15 paratexts, alphabetical indexes. <laughs> but, so, but split out into 15 languages. That's right. Sometimes, of course, it makes sense because they have a different alphabet and how are you going to merge the Hebrew and the Greek and the Latin and so forth. Other times it is slightly show offy, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And difficult because you have to know what term what, what language a term is in before you can find it in the index. Correct. You have to be very persistent in using these indexes. And over time, by the early seventeenth century, I think most of these sort of bulk compilers, as I call them, preferred the single gigantic index. Yeah. But Gessner is still at a phase where he thinks it's better to have a lot of small indexes. But that's partly a performance, as, as you say, isn't it? That's partly a kind of, uh, it's easier for the reader to enumerate how clever Gessner is right. uh, when he splits it all out like that. I think that's part of it, especially when it comes to languages. Yeah. So then we have the text. Those were the front matter. Then we have the back matter. And the, the classic Gessner, as soon as you've done with your text, you immediately have a paralipomena of things forgotten, things left out, a supplement, basically. And so he goes on with his paralipomena. Then he has a list of additions and corrections, which is basically errata. Yeah. Then he has a Greek poem. Then he has a page with a woodcut of God, the creator, and a short prayer. So a wealth of paratexts, many of them that he doesn't use again, of kinds that he doesn't use again, kinds I've never seen anywhere else, like the list of paratexts within the paratext. It doesn't list itself, by the way. Oh, just went to ask. <laughs> <laughs> but you can see he's, um, he's experimenting. He's, he understands the power of print. This is going to go out there. It's going to be out there for a long time. This is a big book. Big Just book. thinking about the ordering of them as well. There are a few that for a 21st century reader, you, one might intuitively imagine belong at the front. So the, the poem, for example, 
I, I kind of tend to imagine that tabular data goes at the back. Tabular data goes in the kind of position of the appendix. But the Greek poem, that's funny. Yeah, that's a good point. I think one of his Gessner's features is that he often has cool ideas that come to him late in the process. And so I can see him sort of running over to the printer. Oh, please include this, you know, because there, I haven't looked at this particular case, but he does actually in his paratext sometimes say, in order not to leave a blank space at the end of this choir, I have added, and that yeah. might be an index, it might be a list of people who also wrote books on this topic, uh, a letter from someone that's relevant to the topic, and you can see him just sort of, you know, he adds copy. But that's he's amazing. That's the, copy. He's working so closely with the printer that he's actually thinking about the materiality of, of, of filling up empty pages or knowing how many, like Elliot does with the Notes of the Wasteland, we need, we need 64 pages, I've got a 32-page poem, a better find some, just write some copy to... I didn't know about that Elliot example. It's fascinating. Yes, I think that is absolutely the case. Of course, fascinatingly, in one case, Gessner repeats twice or the, oh, I, in order not to leave pages blank, and by that time, he's made it, he's entered a new choir, and he has to use it again. So uh, sometimes you can see it's just an excuse to go on, you know, or that's, he gets caught up in his material. As a kind of testament to how closely he's working with his, his printer then. Absolutely. And that may be part of why, you know, the poem and the and the woodcutter at the back, whereas you might expect them at the front. He he's not planned everything out all the time. Yeah. You know, okay. he'll he'll uh, adjust things, and um, and he's you can see him. That's part of the feature of constantly addressing a big audience, telling them to send him stuff, because as he does that, he is getting new material, and of course he wants to stuff it in if he can. So yeah. that may be the story behind the appendix, too, that, oh, my gosh, I just got this great, you know, image in one of him, his uh, actually it's in the reptiles. His appendix is about dogs or and other quadrupeds. So it doesn't even match the topic of the book. <laughs> you know, here he is publishing again. And he knows that the people who are going to buy the reptile book are going to have probably have bought the quadruped book. So might as well give them the appendix. Amazing. Uh, an appendix about dogs. Yeah. And other mammals, actually. And that's where the English connection comes in. The dogs were information supplied to him by John Keyes, and he acknowledges that very explicitly. And Keyes, of course, went on to write a book about British dogs. Did I remember you saying that Keyes was his, his middleman with the Elizabeth dedication? That is true. When things went wrong, Keyes was sort of the one to break the news and to pass on back to Queen Elizabeth that he he had 40 needy relatives and he'd really like to get his shipping costs paid for, please. 40 needy relatives. <laughs> That's what he said. Interestingly, he doesn't did not have any children, wow. but he had many nieces and nephews. He had a big family, right. you know, and of course he's the famous man in the family. So I can see them, you know, <laughs> kind of, come on, Conrad. <laughs> <laughs> but he was always complaining about not having enough money. And that's one of the reasons, probably, he was such a prolific author, because he's probably getting paid, although we don't have details, from the printer for at least some of these books. Right. So some of them are, are, are commissions, essentially, from the printer. Yes. I mean, we don't have details. Uh, we have no accounts from Gessner. We don't have the accounts of the printers involved that talk about this. We Actually, we know of um, a printer paying him for the preface now, mind you, this was a 72-page preface to the works of Galen. And this preface is basically a life of Galen plus, guess your specialty, a bibliography of mm. Galen's works. And I think possibly also works about Galen. So it was a big deal. It was, you know, a major piece. 
and he was paid money for that, cash for that. Often, of course, authors got copies of their books, which they could then turn around and sell, or they would gift to people. And we do have dedication copies, that is, copies that he inscribed to friends uh, or to his boss, basically Heinrich Willinger, the head of the city of Zurich, uh, that are now present in libraries. Uh, there's one at Harvard. There are some in Zurich Library, of course, many of them there. But we do think that he, uh, he does talk about how the printers asked him if he had anything to add to a volume they were already printing on this topic. Yeah. And that's another opportunity for Gessner to produce a work of his own, dedicate it to someone, and get it out in print. Print. How interesting about the, the preface, like a, like a modern book, like an introduction or something, the preface being a, a piece of job work that the publisher commissions and pays separately, pays a... Right. I mean, in this case, though, Gessner, of course, has expertise. He, at the, at the beginning, he is a hack. But in the end, he has a reputation. So it's actually a plus for the book to have this introduction by Gessner, who's a very learned physician yeah. with a strong publication record. And it would be fascinating to know, you know, how much he was paid at the beginning of his career versus how much at the end of his career. And he does get a significant boost after he writes what I call the pathetic letter to Bullinger complaining that he isn't being paid enough in 1558. That's seven years before his death. And so then he started, he gets a raise. So the works published after 1558, we might think, were less driven by his desperate need for money. Um, and yet he still publishes prolifically, but maybe not quite as prolifically, although I think I computed out and it's pretty much even. The point is he's got a personality for this. You know, he is constantly collecting great material that he wants to publish and elicit more material uh, from his contacts. Um, so it's it's partly, I think, maybe it started as a way of making ends meet and rounding out his income. But at some point, obviously, he is just a uh, information manager. That's his thing. I mean, after all, he wrote that Biblioteca Universalis when he was 29 years old. Can you imagine? I can't imagine the book at any age. It sounds such an incredible kind of Borgesian concept, the, uh, a list of all books, ancient and modern in Latin and Greek and Hebrew. Absolutely. It's a dream that, um, you know, he he was wonderful to harbor. Many then people tried to imitate him. There was a Bibliothèque Française in the late 16th century that explicitly talks about imitating Gessner for French books. And, uh, and what's key about it is that he, he didn't want to write a selective bibliography. It's a universal bibliography, and therefore it includes, quote-unquote, bad books, barbarian books. But can I just ask, how, how complete is it? How, how good is it? Is it absurdly quixotic, or does it do a... A decent job of it. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I haven't tried. Um, obviously, be, by limiting himself to Latin and Greek and Hebrew, he's weak on the Hebrew, frankly, and there weren't that many books published. But I think he did a pretty decent job. He's <laughs> omitting, of course, all the vernacular works. You know, yeah. tons of ephemera, pamphlets, the Lutheran pamphlets, uh, news, things that actually don't survive very well because they were printed cheaply and they were for immediate use, not for saving. So by only looking at learned works, he yeah. has an easier time of it. And that's a very good question. I don't think it's been done to actually just sit down. Now that we have Universal STC, for example, you could just sort of drive through and, and see how good a job he did. That's a great idea. I love that. I will I will put that on my yeah. list. I have a bunch of, of lists of things to sort of reenact. You know, Gessner's Bibliotheca, his pandects, 
aren't complete because he never did the index to the medicine volumes. And I've often thought, oh, we could do that. <laughs> Put ourselves in the position of a 16th century compiler. Think of the medical works and how would he, he arrange them? How would we want to arrange them? Uh, and to try and think about actually making a book like that. But I'll put that on the, this one I think is, is more doable and more interesting. That's a good question. I would say he did a very good job. Listen, um, I just want to say thank you so much. It was My pleasure. This was lots of fun. You see, gave me new ideas. And uh, Gessner, of course, who was a tremendously innovative and prolific and learned man, was just an endless source of interest. And I just point out that his works are almost all available, digitized from two European sites erara.ch, which is a Swiss digitizing project, and the Bayerische Staatsbibliothek in Munich. And it's thanks to that digitization that I've been able to have on my computer basically all of 65 works of Gessner's and to pour over his paratext. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you.